Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, November 30th, 2012, and this is episode 1031, 1031 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, it's Friday, 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 and what does that mean? It means it's time for your calls. Now, if you're listening to this and you're new to the show, you might think he's going to give me a number. I'm not calling him. I'm going to talk to him like now and get on the air. You're not because it's pre-recorded. Uh, this show is put out every day, and uh, that means if you call in, you'll get an answering machine if you call the number I'm about to give you, and you can leave a message, and we'll filter your calls, and we'll get about 30 to 40% of the calls that come in on the air on a, on a weekly basis, uh, usually though about two to three weeks behind the schedule just because of the way things run around here. Lately, the call volume's been a bit high, so we haven't quite hit that number. I'm putting a few extra calls. I've gone from about 10 on average to 13 on average per show and that's trying to help uh, get a few more calls uh, on the air. Uh, so how do you get your call on the air? You pick up the phone, you mash some numbers. The numbers are 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You get about two to three minutes to leave your message. Please call from a quiet area. Please make sure if you're on a cell phone you have good signal. And please do this for me. It'll help you. I promise you you'll be more likely to get on the air. Know what your question is. Make the phone call. Ask the question in two sentences or less, uh, and then give me details. I promise you, I promise you your call will go better, and you won't be like some people who I see their phone number in the queue like six times, and the sixth call they get the question asked. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just telling you, I promise you, and when you send me emails uh, as well with a question, Put the question first, then give the details. It'll work so much better. All right, before we get to your questions, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project with the motto of liberty in our lifetime and vote with your feet. This nation is a republic, and the hallmark of a republic is people have freedom of movement in between the member states of the republic, and that gives them greater options for liberty because they have more control locally over what is allowed and what is not allowed by the federal government. Ain't quite working the way it's supposed to. States have kind of lost their will to tell the Fed no because the Fed buys them off with things called federal money, which means you take their money away and you give it back to them. But one of the states that has the largest governing body, which makes their member representatives very accessible in relation to the total population, is New Hampshire. For that and other reasons, New Hampshire was selected for the Free State Project with a goal of uh, 20,000 people eventually moving to New Hampshire with a libertarian mindset to make it the freest state in the Union. That's what they mean by vote with your feet. Now, if it's not in the cards for you to move to New Hampshire, part of me would love to. Part of me knows it just ain't going to happen for me. And uh, that means I can support them in other ways, like putting them on the show as a sponsor for no cost. That's what I do. You can contribute to them. You can come to their events. And remember, I will be speaking at the 2013 Liberty Forum for the Free State Project uh, coming up this winter. So uh, look for more details to be coming out with that. I hope to see you there. Come meet me. Support the Free State Project. Meet some great people. And let's hang out. Uh, we had a blast last year doing just that. Uh, next up today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Some really cool stuff over there. Chef Keith will uh, help you learn how to make cooking into a life skill and a prepper skill at that, because Chef Keith is a prepper. You'll learn how to cook seasonally and locally, and he's got some of the coolest spices and seasoning mixes I've ever seen. Uh, check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Check out his membership program, too. It's really, really cool. 
Next up today, uh, I want to remind you about TSP gear. We have some really cool stuff. We finally got some stock in. The Sentinel t-shirts are just rocking, man. I put a, a picture up on Facebook of some of the decals and the t-shirts yesterday. They look great. Get your orders in now. Uh, with t-shirts and stickers, at least, we're shipping pretty quick now. We've got that up off the ground. TSPcopper.com. Cool copper medallions. Check that out again. TSPcopper.com. .com. A lot of you guys have been asking if there's going to ever be a survival podcast silver coin. Look for a poll to come out probably today or over the weekend. Uh, probably I'll do it on Facebook and the forum. Uh, we have some so designs ready to go. I want to let the audience pick out of the reverse of the design. The front will be the moral compass, uh, just like the copper coin, but the back is going to change. Uh, to be fully representative of TSP, it'll be you know fine silver, one-ounce coins, and we'll get those made as quickly as we can and start offering those to you as well. So TSP Silver is coming. Uh, I don't know exactly how we'll uh, sell those because I would have a different arrangement with AOCS. Uh, on the silver, but uh, we'll we'll get that going just as soon as we can. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content only for members. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Email me before you join. You'll get a discount. Uh, if you put service discount in your subject of your email, send it to jack at survivalpodcast.com. Tell me the nature of your service, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Last day, last day, last day for the lifetime membership opportunity. It's 300 bucks one time. You're a member for the rest of your life instead of 50 bucks a year. I've been asked a few times, do I giving the military, uh, law enforcement, et cetera, a discount on the lifetime membership? No, I am not. The membership itself, in my view, is a discount because you're paying for, uh, for a lifetime membership, which means you get it forever. And TSP will be around for a long time, folks. We've been here over four and a half years. We ain't going nowhere. All we're doing is getting better. So uh, that's that's the nature of that. There'll be a link in today's show notes if you want to join as a lifetime member. But again, that program is closing. Don't look for it to come back anytime soon. Those of you who've already got in touch with me or get in touch with me today, and I get you an invoice or payment information if you want to pay by mail, um, don't sweat it. I mean, the invoices are going out, I think, net 15. It's whatever that defaults in PayPal. You pay me this year, we're good. All right? That's that's how we're doing that. All right. So let's go ahead and get into today's show. Again, these are calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And let's go ahead and take that first call now. Hey, Jack. This is Kale from Kansas, formerly Kale from Iowa, known as CHM22 on the forum. question today is... Uh, so we bought a new five-acre place. Uh, we are setting up what we want on the homestead. And uh, I have a beautiful view, but no great place to set up uh, to shoot. So what I've got is a sloping, a sloping property that slopes back away from the house, but it also slopes down towards the highway. So I want to set up some sort of a backstop uh, to shoot into. Um, and what had come to mind was trying to set up uh, like a traditional hugel culture bed, bed, you know, the eight foot tall pointy thingy. And uh, I had some concerns trying to do that and have plants with, you know, shooting into lead and all that. But realistically, what I'm after is, do you have any suggestions for a multi-purpose backstop? I don't want to just set up a berm in the backyard and uh, shoot into that and have it serve no other purpose other than, okay, now I've got a berm in the backyard to shoot into. Um, doesn't have to be pretty, doesn't have to be great, just, you know, something that serves some other function besides shooting into. 
Um, I do have plenty of range, so I could either shoot. I was thinking more pistol range, but I could shoot from several hundred yards back as well and use it as rifle range. Uh, so if you have any suggestions relating to, you know, berming techniques or using a hugel culture bed or um, how thick it should be, let me know. Greatly appreciate it. Keep up the good work, and I will hopefully hear a response from you. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the gun clubs I was a member of, our rules for our berms were a minimum uh, at any height that you would expect impact of four feet in width, which is probably way overkill, uh, but it certainly works. So that's not at the base of the mound. That's, you know, um, up almost to the top, still four feet wide. Uh, if you got a highway down there, I mean, I, you know your local area. I'm not going to get into safety concerns about what you can and what you can't do and what's safe and what isn't safe. Um, but you, you got to deal with that locally. I'm going to assume you know what you're doing with that uh, or you'll figure it out as you go and what's legal, what's not legal. I don't know how far you actually are from the highway, et cetera, what kind of complaints you might get. That I'm going to leave, but I'm just going to go to the question is you're really asking me is, What can I do with a berm I shoot into constantly uh, without worrying about, you know, lead causing problems and what have you? Um, well, the first thing you can realize is that you're going to have a berm that's much bigger than what you really need for safety purposes. It's going to be higher, it's going to be wider, and it's going to be longer, right? That way, if John Law does show up and says, you know, what's going on, you have your target set up in this little area, You got this berm that's way up higher than, than, than the targets are, and it exceeds in both directions left and right of there. Lead ain't gonna go very far very fast in a pile. So the back side of that berm, you could plant up with anything you want. The top of that berm, you could probably plant up with, with whatever you want. And to the left and right of the main impact sector, I mean, I don't imagine you're gonna have, you know, your 40 guys coming out in a firing line and firing at it the way they would in the military, even though you may have a berm wide enough to accommodate maybe 10 or 15 people. So everything other than that direct impact sector, you can pretty much plant into, and I wouldn't hesitate to plant just about anything in there. Other than I wouldn't be doing vegetables and stuff like that, just because it's going to be a pain in the ass to take care of them. But herbs, uh, bushes, shrubs, vines, things like that, I'd just go nuts with it. It'll hold it together better. Um, one thing you can do to mitigate the uh, the lead that's in the soil is occasionally have a lead pickup party. Um, get out there with a screen and a shovel and right in that impact area, um, recover a bunch of it. Your 22 lead can actually be, you know, then cast into new bullets or any kind of soft lead or even hard cast lead bullets can then be made into lead ignits and recast and reused. And if you don't want them, odds are that, you know, a buddy or someone locally would like to have that, uh, because you can reuse that basically infinitely. Um, you got to do a little bit of cleaning when you first melt it down and skimming some stuff off, but that's true with just about any source of lead other than a pure lead ignit. Uh, so that is something that you could do to mitigate how much lead's in the ground. Now, your, your jacketed stuff, you can just discard that somewhere else. Um, I don't think I'd try to be picking stuff out of jackets or anything. I don't know that it's really worth it, but, I, you know, when I think about it, I guess if you had jacketed lead, if you're not talking full metal jacket, anything where the lead is exposed, like hollow points and flat points, I bet if you heated it up, you could separate the lead out. I've never tried it. I don't know if it's worth it. It probably ain't. But my point is you could occasionally reclaim a lot of what you're shooting. 
if you're like most shooters, you probably want to shoot whatever you have whenever you feel like it, but you're probably going to shoot more .22 than anything else. So that lead is at least re worth reclaiming for recasting or repurposing for somebody else to use. Uh, if nothing else, you got a bunch of stuff that adds up to weight and it's heavy and could be used to weigh stuff down. I don't know. Uh, you know, a, a, a milk jug full of bullets is a pretty good anchor uh, for some things. But it's just I wouldn't oversweat it, and I wouldn't really worry about harvesting so much of it back. It's just easier than you think. People have this this mindset that a bullet hits a an earth mound, then it goes way down and don't go deep at all. Um, if you just start uh, digging by hand, you'd be amazed at how many rounds that you could find in an earth mound. Um, we were out at a range in Panama one time, and we were just messing around with some of the uh, places where they had uh, the uh, where the berms were for, for impact. And you know what can we find? And we're finding some bent up, twisted, you know, five five six and thirty cal stuff. And all of a sudden, I find this. It was almost felt like a piece of steel. And it was perfect. You could see the rifling on it. It was a huge freaking um, slug, pointed, per no deformation at all. And everybody's going, that's a 50 cal. And I'm like, I don't think it is. I, said, I think that's a lot bigger. I think it, this is back when they had the National Guard down here or something, and they they, they got you know some Apaches. And I think it's a 20 millimeter. And the guys like, no, no. I'm like, this is a lot. All the guys, I'm like hunting all life. I know a half inch round. This is big. So we took it back. The motor pool pulled out a socket set, and it fit right into a 20 millimeter socket. Um, and I don't know what happened to that thing. That should have been something I would have kept and had in my little, you know, box of trinkets and doodads and stuff. And I forgot all about it till just now. But my point is that wasn't very deep in the ground. Um, I don't know how far away it was shot from, how long it washed out, but it was, it wasn't two feet into the earth. Earth is the best bullet stopper on planet earth. Uh, no pun intended there. And, uh, it's why it's used in sandbags for defensive positions and things like that. Uh, so you can get a lot of that let out and it's not going to do a whole lot of migrating. Uh, if you go to a rifle range, a lot of times you'll notice that the tops of the berms are all, you know, weeded in in the backside. So it's not going to have a detrimental effect. The concern obviously is lead in your food. Uh, I wouldn't overthink it, but I wouldn't plant real, real close to your impact sector. So let's say you have an impact sector you expect to be about four foot by, by six foot, you know, six foot high, four foot wide. You got a berm that's eight foot or nine foot tall. Uh, I just stay away from the impact area and go out about two or three feet on either side and plant it all, all you want in the backside, go nuts with. You're not going to have much trouble there and occasionally reclaim the lead. That's, that's the best I can come up with. It is ideal. You know, would I want to be shooting into my garden on a daily basis? No, but if it's going to be there, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Gary from Northeastern Oregon. My question is in regards to the use of colloidal silver. I've been listening to the podcast for about the past two and a half years, and I don't specifically ever recall you speaking to this topic. Uh, my background is I'm an emergency physician, and in medicine, we've really established the use of silver impregnated catheters like central venous and urinary catheters because of their <coughs> bacteriostatic properties. But when it comes to the advocates of systemic use of colloidal silver, Alex Jones, I've largely dismissed that as kind of uh, nutcases, to be honest, and I really haven't looked at it. My, my point of pause is when I hear someone like Matt Stein, who appears to be a 
strong advocate and has an engineering background, which I also have. I'm wondering if I'm missing something. What's your experience, opinion, research, general impression on the systemic use of colloidal silver? Thanks. Ah, colloidal silver, the thing with a, a fine hair of truth and a whole freaking jackass of lies, uh, hype and other crap. You know, colloidal silver will cure your cancer, make you young again, and give you the vitality of an 18-year-old stallion or whatever other nonsense they come up with. Colloidal silver, when taken internally into the body, so you swallow it, you drink it, is about as useless as it can be. It really is. Um, it's, it does have a legitimate use, and that legitimate use is topically to prevent or deal with infected wounds. It is effective. It does work. It probably don't work as good as something like over-the-counter Neosporin. It really probably does. And there's probably, you know, a hundred different ways I could tell you to put together an herbal salve that would probably be better than colloidal silver, at least by itself, or that could have colloidal silver as an element that would be more effective in a variety of ways. Um, honey would probably help with a wound almost every bit as much, if not better, than colloidal silver. It works. It just isn't a silver bullet. Okay, It is an infection preventative. It is a disinfectant. It is an antibiotic. That's what it is. Um, there's a lot of things that you could use to treat infection or prevent infection. Let's say alcohol. Right? If you take alcohol and you clean a wound with it, you help to sanitize the wound and kill infection. But if you have an infection and you drink a shot of whiskey, it ain't going to make your infection go away. They, just, they, they behave differently in the body versus outside the body. It, it's a very simple concept to understand, but because it's, it's relatively safe, and you're, unless you're Smurf Man and you, you drink a bottle of it a day and turn yourself blue because uh, you're an idiot, uh, it's relatively safe. And it does have antibacterial properties to it, antimicrobial properties to it. So you can market it as having those properties and then use all this illusionary language that basically creates this image of it being a cure-all for everything and to make you healthier and let all the claims come from the crazy people that got a placebo effect versus your company. And you can sell this stuff for a mint. And you can sell it to the gullible, the easily led, the stupid, and the innocent that trust other people. Okay, that's, that's the market as a whole. It is topically effective, though. So what purpose does it serve for us as preppers? The big advantage to something like colloidal silver over something like neosporin for wound treatment is I can make it. So having what you need to generate colloidal silver, and it can be used to do things like to help prevent contamination of water. Okay, So those are two things that it can be used for, and I can make it. So in a collapse scenario, it's valuable. So developing the skill to make your own and understanding it and knowing how to use it may have some value in a collapse scenario. But buying it from some multi-level marketing ripoff company 
and drinking it every day ain't going to do you a damn hill of beans of good. That's my understanding. That's based on my research. I did not approach the, the whole thing with a complete skeptical attitude. I knew that some of the claims made about it had to be, oh, it cures cancer. Sure. Then why don't give a bottle to every cancer patient in the hospital ward, let them drink it and walk out cured tomorrow because it doesn't do it. That's why. So I knew that was crap, but I thought, you know, maybe there's something to it. And that's all I can legitimately find. Topical, antimicrobial, antibacterial, etc. can be used to sterilize, sanitize things, can be used in wound treatment, safe, can make it yourself. That's all it is. It's not bad. It just, you can't try to make it more than it is. Good question. Um, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, how are you? My name is John. I'm, uh, I've been listening to the show for about a year now, and I love it. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a question for you or if it's a good one for Joe Nobody, but uh, I'm looking to buy a rifle. It might be a multi-purpose rifle to where I can use it for some home defense um, and also for uh, moose and deer hunting up here in New Hampshire. Um, I, you know, I wanted to get something along the lines of uh, of an M4 or, uh, you know, uh, you know, some kind of an assault rifle, if you want to call it that, or a combat rifle, but I need it to be multi-purpose because I can't buy two. So uh, if you get back to me, that'd be great. Thanks. Bye. So you want a black rifle, semi-automatic, ARAK-style gun that you can hunt moose with. If you lived in a state um, that would allow you to hunt uh, for big game with a semi-automatic rifle, I'd say you could go out and find a good, uh, especially one of the sporting platform designed, maybe something by Remington, uh, AR-10, uh, 308, and you're done. And, you know, that's fine for home defense and et cetera. And here's the thing. The reality is anything you can shoot a moose with and kill it is more than adequate for home defense. So we got to kind of think the other way around here. Um, the most likely use for this 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 gun will be for hunting if, if you intend to hunt with it. So I've looked up your state, and as I suspected, in most states in the northeastern United States anyway fall under this, Semi-automatic rifles are not legal for hunting big game in your state. So unless you're talking about, I want to use it during a collapse when it don't matter when seasons are in or anything like that, and be able to take big game for food, the AR-10's out. If that's what you, if you're not a hunter, and you, because the fact that you didn't know what I just told you may indicate you don't actually intend to hunt. Uh, you just intend to have this thing, and it's it's there in case you need it, and that might be one of the roles that it would fill, but primarily it's to be in your home as a home defense weapon. A good AR-10 platform will, will do the job for you all day long. The 308 is more than capable of putting down a moose, specifically the moose that we have in the northeastern United States versus you know the giant, huge moose in Alaska, which I would still uh, confidently hunt with the right load with a 308 or a .30-06. But assuming you actually want a hunting rifle for your area of the country that can fill both roles and yet be as close of an approximation to what you're looking for, uh, magazine-fed, relatively high capacity, center fire capable of both home defense and big-game hunting roles, probably, and somebody may come up with a better recommendation, but probably the best thing I can recommend for you is a Remington Model 7600. You can get it in synthetic stock, which will cost you less than the pretty one in wood, and be more akin to what you're looking for anyway. The 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 rifles come with a five-round uh, box-style magazine, feeds from the bottom, and it's a pump action. 
So it's really quick uh, on follow-up shots, and you have a capacity of five. That's also a restriction in your state. You cannot hunt with any rifle with a magazine capacity greater than five. There's no restriction on magazines themselves. This is a game regulation, not a firearms regulation. There's certain things you can't do, right? Like you can't go out with a blunderbuss, you know, two-gauge cannon in the front of your boat and fire it into a flock of ducks. Most Uh, places when hunting with a shotgun for 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 uh, for fowl, you know, ducks or doves or anything like that, you have to plug the capacity of your your tubular magazine to two for a total capacity of three rounds. This is a game regulation I'm talking about here, so for hunting. But the nice thing is you can go out and get ten round magazines for the Remington 7600. I would recommend a caliber of 3006. It's also available in 308. So if you have some fondness for that or a military round availability or something like that, you could work with that. Remember, we can fire military 7.62 in a 308. It's not generally safe to fire 308 in a military 7.62. It's exactly the opposite of 5.56 and 223. Uh, 5.56 being hotter, 223 being a little bit cooler. And one going one way and not the other. So in 308, you can take your 7.62 military ammo and put it in your 308 sporting chamber. And it'll fire just fine. So you can go to 308. The old 306, 308 debate ain't never going to go away. Everybody's there, always going to think they're right in a pump action rifle. The short action thing that cuts a couple, you know, a quarter of an inch, half an inch off the total length of the gun. Uh, or the inherent accuracy of a short action over a long action bolt does not apply. Doesn't apply. It's the same receiver. So it's which one ever you like better. For moose, this is where you can actually give a little bit of edge to the 3006, taking up 220 grain bullets, which is what I would use if I were hunting moose with a 3006. So I would go with 3006. It's also available in 270 Winchester and 243 Winchester. Uh, the 270 is adequate for moose. It's a little marginal, I would say, but it's adequate. 243 is not a moose caliber. It's a good deer caliber, ain't a moose caliber. So that would be my primary recommendation. Remington 7600, synthetic stock, 3006. You can probably find them at gun shows cheap. Uh, brand new, they're not cheap. They're not real, real expensive either, but they're not cheap. If you look around a little bit, uh, it is very possible that you will find one of the old-style uh, 760 carbines. Uh, they made the 760 was the, the, the child, and then I guess this is the grandchild, the 7600. The 760, the old model, they made for a while in an 18.5-inch barrel carbine. I believe that was only made in 3006. It's a lot handier in the woods. It's a lot handier in a home if you can find one. And the furniture, so to speak, the synthetic stocks, you should be able to fit onto that. They didn't change them very much when they changed them. So, I mean, my dad had an old 760. and I look at 7600s today, and I, I really can hardly tell the difference uh, in them. The furniture looks the same to me. So that would be a way to get a shorter barrel without going to a custom gunsmith for modification. The only other recommendation I would have for you, and if you wanted a moose round for hunting the thickets in New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, that area, and deer, uh, would be 4570 Marlin guide gun and lever action. It doesn't have a detachable magazine. It's not a close approximation, but you know, if you have some bad guy breaking into your house and you hit him with a 4570, he's done. Uh, absolutely, completely, totally, 100% done. So it will serve that role, but it doesn't have the 
approximation. Best thing I can recommend for you to fit legality and practicality in your situation. Uh, 7600. Didn't kick it to Joe Nobody because, frankly, I don't think you would have got that answer from him. He doesn't strike me much as the hunting type, more of the uh, tactical side of things. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Tyler calling from Goose Creek, South Carolina again. I called earlier this week um, about... My wife and I getting more prepared as a result of the election and as uh, a result of Sandy. Um, I, w- I just had a quick question about cleaning gas containers, the little five-gallon red jugs that you can buy from Lowe's. I found a couple that uh, a gentleman was willing to give me, a couple meaning a few, uh, ten actually, and they had been sitting outside. Looks like they had some rainwater in them and some goop inside of them. I was just wondering if you had any uh, any insight in, on how to clean those things out and uh, if it's even possible to put fuel in them as opposed to running out and spending money on uh, brand new ones when these are used and, uh, you know, they're free. Uh, and free is good. So I just uh, would like your, your take on that. And like always, keep it up and have a good day. All right, that one is the first question in a twofer for Steve Harris. Uh, I got another one for him right after this, but let's go ahead and hear Steve's answer to that one. Tyler from South Carolina, thank you very much for calling in. I got your question. Well, the answer to this is pretty straightforward. Go get your garden hose. Go get the 10 gas tanks. Congratulations on finding 10 free gas tanks. Remember, when you when you ask someone, the world opens up to you, and apparently 10 gas tanks opened up to you. Go get your garden hose. Go get the gas tanks and squirt it in there and wash the heck out of them inside and outside get all the dirt on the inside out spray it in there as hard as you can and uh, get all that gunk out and then once you completely rinse them out and there's nothing in there let them dry i mean it's going to take a couple days but put them uh, bring them inside the house so no spiders can crawl into them no other dirt will fall into them and just let them completely 100 dry out and then you're 100 safe to put all of the gasoline you could so desire into them. This will work perfectly for you. And you can get all of my stuff at www.solar1234.com. All my previous shows are there for you to listen to. Just come and click on them and listen away to your heart's content. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye. All right, great, simple, quick answer for Steve. That might have been a record short answer for him. We've got another question for him here. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to play this question, and then uh, instead of coming back and breaking it up, I'm going to go right into Steve's second answer. Hey, Jack, this is Eric from Minneapolis. Uh, I have a question on fuel storage. So listen to Steve Harris's show you know, a couple weeks ago or a month, whatever that was, on putting the fuel in the 15-gallon plastic drums. My question is, could we put those in the ground to bury those. And I was thinking of putting them inside of another drum, maybe a you know a twenty gallon or thirty five gallon, whatever it would be where we could sleeve it and double wall it. Um, just from you know storage room really, trying to find a place of those maybe behind out back. We could put them down, you know, into the ground a little bit and just not quite have them in the garage because, you know, storage is an issue with us. So I'm not sure if that's a question for Steve or not or you, but just you know, want to be safe and everything, and not having those leaking out, leaching into the garden or the you know the yard or anything stupid like that. But still, just trying to you know conserve some space. So love the show. Uh, let me know what you think. Thanks, Jack. Hello, Eric. That is a great question, man. I didn't ever thought of that, but that's a good one. 
Yeah, you can put the drums into the ground, and you don't need to put anything around them. They're, they aren't going to deteriorate in there. If you did put them in another drum, you'd have to get another cheap plastic drum. It'd be 30 or 55 gallons. 55 gallons would be too big. You'd have to cut the top off the thing, and then you'd have to put the other drum in it and bury it. Uh, that HDPE is not going to deteriorate in the ground, and so you can go ahead and bury those. It's going to be a 15-gallon hole. It's, like, you know, it's a heck of a hole, so it's going to be a fair amount of work. I would suggest that you uh, bury it such that the top of the drum is just below the ground, and then I would put a circular piece of wood, uh, a little bigger than the drum, right over it, and then put the sod right there and have uh, something sticking up through the ground so you could pick it up and pull it off and check on it on a regular basis or get to it easily without breaking up the sod. Or if you don't have grass and stuff, you could leave the top of it sticking out. You don't have to bury it all the way. You could just bury it 95% of the way. That would work. There is a lot of different things you could do with that, but it's a great way of doing it. You, the fuel likes to be cool, likes to be dark, and that's what you need to store it. So, yeah, great idea. It's a great one. I like it. And, again, if any of you guys want to listen to my past shows, they are all available for instant listening. Just tap play here, listen here on your cell phone. They're at www.solar1234.com. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel saying thank you. Call in with some more. Bye. Uh, I, I think it's a great answer. I think Steve's absolutely right, but I am going to preface it with one warning. It is almost inevitable that you're violating some sort of environmental regulation or law. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying how you should run your own life. I'm just saying you should know what you're doing when you do that and know what you may be setting yourself up for. Um, but does it actually do any harm? The answer is probably no. You may want to check into any regulations about underground fuel storage in your area before you make a decision whether to or not to do something like that. That's my legal disclaimer there. We're all adults. We all make our own decisions. It's not like you intend to harm anything. Just want to point that out. And I don't believe that that would be, since it's not even a, a, uh, a fuel container per se, uh, approved for underground storage. It may have limitations on how big or small and the risk of being uh, prosecuted or anything may be very low, but I would just please think about certain things before you do them. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Drew in Colorado. Um, I just listened to your podcast and you mentioned about having Jeff Lawton come out to your property and do a permaculture uh, design course on your property and Sounds awesome, but I don't think I could afford it. What would you think about doing a video um, while Jeff Lawton is there and possibly selling that video? I could know I would be willing to pay for that if it was a reasonable cost. Um, no, it would be more money up front for you, which might be challenging, but just came up with that idea, wondering what you thought about it. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye. There's been a ton of people asking about that. There's a guy that wants to do it kind of in a big way that I'm going to need to get in touch with about, uh, and I still haven't gotten in touch with him because I'm just busy as hell right now trying to get ready to get out of here and move. Um, but that's something that, you know, we're definitely going to do one way or another. Somehow, so there will be video cameras running during this thing, and one way or another, something will come out the other end that will be made available to people. Exactly how, I'm not sure yet. Shooting a production, you know, quality DVD requires additional efforts from everybody involved, specifically the instructor, 
so it can't encumber the workshop. So somebody running around with a shotgun mic is pretty passive, and it might have to be that way. If we're micing Jeff and setting things up and doing intros, that probably isn't going to quite happen that way. Um, but if we have good cameras, good shotgun mics, you know, me introducing a segment just by introducing the instructor, we'll probably be able to make that work. Mike and Jeff up during walkthroughs and stuff will probably be able to do. I'm sure he'd be willing to do that. And exactly how this thing comes out the other end, I don't know yet. It could end up being an entire DVD series that is made available uh, through the gear shop, which is probably how I would do it is through the gear shop, through Kelly John Doe. Or it may end up actually being something with Jeff's ability to do distribution and things that we make let him make available. I just don't know yet. But one way or another... Um, please understand, we're not just going to do this thing and you don't get to come because only so many people do or you can't afford it or whatever and it's overdone and you never know anything about it again. There will be tremendous amounts of follow-up video by me explaining the progress of the system and explaining how we continue to phase it in because we plan to do all the earthworks while Jeff's there. It just makes sense. The equipment's there, Jeff's there, get it done. But we can't possibly plant everything. So there will be a lot of mulch thrown down, cover crop, and places where we have to advance the forest sections and things over time. Additionally, our plan is to run a series of small workshops, probably stuff where people show up on a Friday, stay through the weekend, go home Sunday night, something like that, where we do some work on the Saturday, uh, we do uh, instructionals Friday evening, we do some stuff on Sunday, maybe we even run them, you know, people can st come in on Thursday and we run them Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that to give people more time on site. Those are going to be a lot more affordable. 500 bucks a head or less, I don't know. Basically, I want to do enough that whatever we have to bring in or instructors we have to bring in or any kind of support we have to bring in for those, we can cover the cost of that, and I can give you guys a good experience so that you're, you're eating well, you're well taken care of, you're entertained, that type of thing. And I think that that'll be a lot more affordable and smaller groups even. I think that's maybe something we cap at like six a workshop. Um, really intimate. Get to know me. Get to know get to know Dorothy. Get to know the instructor if there's a guest instructor. Get to know each other and lots of them. You know, one a month or more. So everybody will have opportunities to work stuff like that in. This big one, I can't. I just don't have the ability to put too many people on the property at one time with with this much stuff going on. Again, this is not my original idea to be two hours outside of the city in the middle of nowhere where no one would care. Um, It's almost that, but not quite, and I have to limit the class size. But yes, there'll be video running, there'll be video available, it will happen. I keep getting people saying, I have a great idea, you know, and I don't mean to pick on you or nothing, but yeah, we thought, it's not like, you know, we just figured this out, yeah. We, we've thought of that, we're going to try to do that, you know, and, and we're going to make it work one way or another. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack, this is Garrett from Utah. I've been listening for a year and a half now. My question for you is, Is joining active, active duty in the military a good idea right now? I'm currently part of the Marine Corps Reserve, and I've just learned that it's possible to move from reservist to active duty. I'm married and I have a daughter due in December. I'm 21 years old. Some of the reasons that I'm interested in active duty are a chance to learn a trade, education benefits after I've finished my, my service, a way to pay off some of our debt, and, of course, the opportunity to serve in our, in our country's military. My concerns are the possible future of America and the turbulence in the world. They take good care of, of us in the military, but I'm not sure if being away from the support of our family is a great idea right now. I appreciate your thoughts, Jack. Thank you very much. 
Um, I'm going to say some things that are almost painful for me to say here because it, it, it hurts me to have to tell people, no, I, I, I don't think I would want to be in active military service right now. But in many ways, I do not. Um, I joined the military when I was 17 years old, and I was out by the time I was 21 years old. I had good advancement. I had good experiences. I think it shaped my life. I'm very grateful for it. And if I was 18, 17 years old, in 1989, 1990, again, that realm, would I do it again? Absolutely. Would I do it today in my current life? No, hell no, no way. As a 40-year-old man with a successful career in life uh, and the way things are running today, there is no way I would do it today. If I were 21, would I do it? Um, if I were single and didn't have a kiddo, maybe. If I was married and had a kid, no freaking way in hell. No way. I respect the hell out of guys that do it. I really do. But I got to tell you, there's two things that happens to a family in the military when it comes to a married family in the military. They become the tightest, uh, most loyal family you'll find. And unfortunately, that's the minority. The other one is they end in divorce. That's, that's pretty much the track record. If you look at the divorce rate for military spouses, especially young military spouses, they are astronomical even in comparison to the whole that's already bad in this country. It's a lot of stress on a woman that's 21, 22 years old with a baby while her marine husband is halfway across the world, even if he's not in combat. Um, I'll also tell you this. The more and more the military is being asked to do things that I don't think they should be doing. And we need good people there. That's the other side of it. When people say, don't let anybody that's a good person join the military, well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? We get a bunch of dumbasses to do whatever they're told in violation of their oath. Um, so I do want good people in the military. And if you decided to do it, I would thank you for your service and wish you the best. But... When I think of being 21 years old, having your whole life ahead of you, already serving in the reserves, already having the potential to be called up whenever it's deemed necessary, and having a young baby at home and a young wife at home that you could be taken care of, I'm sorry the answer is no. And don't listen to them about how they'll make sure that wherever you serve, your spouse can come along unless it's a combat theater and all. Yeah, I saw guys in Panama for six to eight months before they were able to bring their spouses in country, at least. And... uh I just don't think it's a good thing for a married person. I think it's a single man's game. Those of you that are married in the military that have good relationships and all, like I said, it's the minority. And those of you that do, you know what I mean when I say it's incredible, the tightness of a family that makes it. But that's because you go through that crucible together and you come out the other side. And the thing about a crucible is it either hardens you or kills you. And, and when it comes to marriage and families and romances, there ain't nothing that kills it better for young people, especially the military service. Um, about the only way that I usually see it work out with some level of preponderance is when both spouses are military and generally one side's getting out and that is going to, they're going to have that military civilian lifestyle at that point so that one can go where the other one is as available and uh, understands, truly understands. Because this is the thing about being a soldier or a Marine or what have you. No one who hasn't done it can understand it. They, they can't. They can watch movies. They can watch documentaries. They, they will never 
ever fully understand what it means to you, what it does to you, how it affects you, how it will affect you for the rest of your life, even your reserve service. They cannot understand it. They cannot get it. They will not be able to get their head around it. I don't care if they went to some kind of freaking, you know, whatever, they police explorers thing when they were a kid or something or, you know, something like that. They're not going to understand it. Uh, it. Really never will. And that means that when you're not there, no matter how good you are as a spouse, they're going to wonder if it's true. And it's tough. And if you were just only married without a child, it might change my opinion a little bit if it was a short-term enlistment, like two to four years. With a kid already, I'd build your world in the civilian life myself. Just my thoughts. And I don't begrudge anybody that does it the other way. But my biggest thing is if you had to call me and ask me, you have doubts, trust your gut. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Terrence calling from the People's Republic of Illinois. I know, I know. Hey, my question is, uh, what are some techniques I can use to improve situational awareness in an urban environment? Uh, my situation is that I live uh, basically where the Chicago burbs uh, transition to rural property, but I work right in the middle of downtown Chicago, right off from Michigan Avenue. Uh, obviously, step one of my preparedness plans is to get out of downtown Chicago before any situation gets bad enough to prevent that. And, you know, things like uh, storms you know, are usually pretty easy as we have, you know, advanced warnings when a nor'easter or blizzard's coming. But I'm most concerned about uh, large crowds of panicking people. I made it a part of my day to try to keep an eye on the news and pay attention to what's going on outside my building. And I've considered a police or marine band scanner. Um, but are there any other ideas of, of things I could be doing to... Uh, to improve my uh, knowledge of what's what's going on, I'm basically on the ground, uh, so I can uh, get a little bit of a head start before any uh, possible uh, disaster uh, gets too bad. Uh, thanks for your efforts. Also, thanks for understanding that not all of us can move to rural Idaho, as nice as that sounds. Take care. Thank you. You know, that's a great question, and it's a great thought process, and... I haven't done a show on situational awareness in a very long time, and I probably should. Let's look at this twofold. Um, there's what you would call general situation aware, aware, general situational awareness, and specific situational awareness. And I don't know if that's real words, you know, or real common thoughts or anything like that. I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here with my my way of personally looking at this. And what I mean is. As far as specific situational awareness, you're going beyond what's immediately available to you to be aware of. So this is things like, is there something going on in my city that might result in a riot? Staying on the pulse of things before they're observable in your daily walk. And then there's general, which is your daily walk. When you're walking around, do I feel like I'm going through an area that's not really a good area to be in right now? Did I get out of the car and notice I was looked at a certain way and realize that maybe discretion is a better part of valor here and I shouldn't be in this location and move? Frank Sharp puts it as don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people, right? So that's the day-to-day. -day. Let's look at it twofold. Let's start off with how we can just be more situational aware through an exercise in everything we do, and I do this. Every time you drive to work, every time you drive home, every time you go to a store, especially any place you regularly go, try to spot four or five things that you normally would not spot. A license plate on a car that's from a different state. Okay, um, 
somebody cut the grass and you noticed that the obviously the property line ended where they stopped cutting the grass or, or did it is is it they, they cut a little bit over onto their neighbor's yard because that was how the last swoop went little details i saw a lady walking a dog what kind of dog was it what color was the lady's hair that type of thing try to get to the end of your drive or your walk or your run or your jog if you're exercising or your walk in the park or your bike ride or whatever it is and then be able to sit down and say here's six things ten things that I observed not necessarily out of the ordinary just small details because you'd be surprised what people don't observe my wife's bad with this um, for Veterans Day they parked a deuce and a half uh, military truck down by the church that got wiped out during the tornado a couple years ago Just kind of parked it there. A lot of people that own military vehicles put them out for Veterans Day and stuff like that. And uh, it, it was there for like a week. And I said to her, I said, I wonder when they're going to take that military truck away. Uh, you know, it's been out there for a week now. And she said, what military truck? I said, the great big camouflage deuce and a half parked 15 feet off of Highway 7 you've driven past five times this week. At least, because you go to and from work. I never saw it. Where is it? It's by the church. What church? Church got hit by the tornado, the one right behind where we live. Didn't see it. Okay. See, and that's, to me, that's a glaring thing. I don't know how you, it was put there to be seen, and it's totally out of the ordinary. So, the second part of the exercise, especially once you've become familiar with the route, and you've been doing your little detail-oriented thing, try to find two or three things every day that weren't that way yesterday, or you didn't notice before or seem out of the ordinary. And if you can come back and say, now I know that there was a green car parked there yesterday, there's a blue, I don't care what it is. What happens is you're turning your mind on to be paying attention to details. You, you, this would be a good exercise for all I know. It's an exercise they give people becoming detectives in law enforcement. You're turning your mind on to be aware of everything by just simply being aware of certain things. If you're looking for something out of the ordinary, you're looking for something to remember, you're seeing more. Now, don't let this make you a distracted driver and kill yourself or get in a wreck. But it's very easy just with peripheral vision. You should be paying attention anyway. Get out of the zombie-like trance. You know, and, and pick up on things. If you can do it with music playing or my podcast playing or something else like that, so much the better. Now it's more like real life. You're, you're not just focused on this as a task, right? So that's, that is probably the best advice I can give you in a short answer like this to increase that situational awareness. That's a great exercise for everybody. Everybody should start doing that now. This second, look around your office if you're listening to headphones while you work and see if you can pick up on five or six details you've never noticed before in the office you've worked in for 10 years. You'll be surprised at what you'll notice if you'll look for it. Um, try to be aware. The, 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 larger, the larger specific situational awareness, is there going to be a ride or all, something like that, um, tie into any kind of alert service that your local police department, fire department, etc. has. Get a scanner maybe. Uh, possibly get a scanner app for your smartphone. Just check in once in a while with it. Turn it on, see what's going on. But there is an overlap. And I can tell you this, if you're going through a bad area of Chicago or whatever, and something's brewing, right, even though it's not ready to break yet, like I guarantee you, if you were paying attention and walked through parts of L.A. or drove through parts of L.A. before the Rodney King riots erupted, People were behaving differently. There were signals that was something coming. So there's overlap. But your general everyday situational awareness, I can't think of a better way to up it 
then, and if you have a partner, a friend, a wife, whatever, where you travel to and from, don't talk to each other about what you're seeing. And then at the end of your trip, play a little game with each other. What were your five things you picked up on? Oh, yeah, I noticed that too, but that's not what, here's my thought. And, and start to feedback that information, especially if you're going to go back the way you came. You go in shopping and you've exchanged that information. On the way back, look for it. Don't, don't necessarily tell them it was, you know, at my marker five on the right. Just say, I noticed this and see if they can find it on the way back and see if you can find theirs on the way back. Your mind will switch on to a higher level of activity if you do that. That's one of my favorite situational awareness uh, exercises. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Scott. I'm calling from near Birmingham, Alabama. And I've got a follow-up, kind of a dovetail call off of uh, Richard that was calling from North Alabama on episode 1012. It was on what to do or how to do the large... Uh, scale hugel bed and I'm going to give a little more detail that he didn't give and hopefully uh, give a little direction on where I need to go so I am building the full scale hopefully set pulser type 6 foot tall hugel beds in fact I got off my tractor now to uh, come and make this call to make sure I'm not going too far hopefully but I am uh, looking to grow all types of vegetables uh, herbs you know, the full spectrum of, of any type of uh, garden vegetable in addition to having trees on the uphill side of the bed to make my food forest. I'm planning on doing multiple rows, but only uh, only currently working on the uh, one row. I'm putting old wood into it, but I'm just pulling tree out of, a, of my local forest. So am I going to be able to grow these salads and all types of herbs and vegetables. I'm, I'm planning on uh, doing cover crops when I'm not actively guarding in it, keep it green all year. Uh, so hopefully I'm building me a good system. I don't see uh, what the problem is. So uh, anyway, just looking for a little pointers. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Bye-bye. Yeah, good question. And here's the thing. If you really want food forestry, um, my take would be to go more towards swales. Um, swales are forest building structures. Because a forest is not a line. It's it's a clumpy, long, wide structure. So a swale doesn't just have an effect in the berm. It has an effect down grade. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong with your hugel bed, and it can do a lot for you, and you can grow trees in it. I would not try to grow trees that are going to be giant 30-foot oak trees and things like that in a hugel bed. I would grow trees in hugel beds that more along the lines of dwarf, semi-dwarf uh, trees, trees that you're going to prune into the the 6 to 10-foot high range, something like that. Um, you can grow those in the sides, not directly on top. You can kind of flatten the top and put them up there on top and make the top a little bit wider, maybe you know, three, four foot wide if you have enough material to make that happen. Your question on like, you know, salad, herbs, and stuff like that, you can grow anything. But there is something called succession, right? We move from one phase to the next. If you plant enough trees and bushes and vines, more of that clumpy forest structure, you will eventually crowd out the space. There's a lot of lag in there where you can grow annual crops in between them, and as they progress toward climax, 
the, the room and space for your herbaceous pushes out to the edge and there's less room for it, but it'll work. But yeah, you can do it, but just don't go trying to plant these trees that are going to be 20 foot overstory trees, top canopy layer trees in a hugel bed, because you're going to run into problems eventually with root structure and the ability for that tree to remain intact and in that place. Hugel culture is much more of a farming concept than a food forest concept. A food forest is supposed to function like a natural forest. Hugel culture is actually optimized for harvest. People go, how do you harvest this bank when it's like, you know, a meter and a half high at the top and it's at a 70 degree angle? You stand in front of it, reach out and grab your stuff. It's actually optimized for harvesting. You stand there and you can reach out. If you've got a three meter wide base going up to about a, uh, you know, let's say uh, a meter wide top and a 70 degree angle, And you've got it six foot high to the top. A six foot tall man can reach out and touch the top from the bottom. You're only one and a half meters. Actually, you're only one meter in the difference between where your feet are and where your hand is. Three feet. Now, a six foot tall dude has definitely a three foot reach. You can walk up it a little bit. It ain't like you can't walk on them. Big thing I got to tell you, though, you talk about cover crops and all. Please do. Yes. Plant it as soon as possible, like the day you build it if possible, so that the soil doesn't get a chance to settle and harden. You want roots in there. Remember, roots don't grow in soil. They grow in between soil particles. So those roots don't actually penetrate soil particles. They penetrate spaces in the soil. They keep the soil from overcompacting. So that's the best answer I can give you there. Just if you really want a forest architecture, you know, then you need to look more at... Um, a, a, a swale-based structure. Hugo culture is designed for more of this kind of laid-out horticulture type arrangement, more like a crossover between forest-based permaculture and a farm, somewhere in the middle. you got a lot of the forest architecture going on there, but you're limiting it to a three-meter-wide area, right? And you've got this, this structure that you're planning on, and the space down that you're walking on is either going to be cover crop or pasture or things like that, a pathway that you can walk on. So that's, that's my thoughts on that for you. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Brian. Um, I've emailed you a couple times, but uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on a Munchausen by proxy government. Um, I'll send you a link here in a blog basically talking about how uh, the government creates problems uh, just to create solutions. Uh, the blog I'm going to send you talks mainly about HSAs. Thanks. Bye. Oh, I've never actually heard it put that way before, but it's an interesting way to look at it. When it comes to the government and government officials, you always have to look at where is the line between malice and incompetence. And I always say never attribute that to malice, that which can be explained through incompetence, because there's an awful lot of incompetence in government. Before I answer the question further, though, let's, let's talk about what Munchauser by proxy generally is, because uh, some people may not know. This is a, a, a psychiatric nut job condition, generally something that happens to women more than men, where they decide their little child is sick. And they need to be taken care of. And they either exaggerate their symptoms, keep them in bed all the time, or actually many times cause the illness. So they'll poison their child and then take them to the doctor and go they're so, stick to the stomach all the time. And the whole time a doctor's trying to treat this, the mother's making the child more and more sick. 
The mother wants the child sick so that she can fill in the caregiver role. Uh, this is something that's not anywhere near as common as TV makes it out to be. It's in medical, you know, dramas and like house and stuff like that all the time. Uh, and it's actually very, very, very rare. But it does happen and there are people that are just, they, this is an, this is not a person who specifically wants to harm anybody. This is a person that is seriously mentally sick and needs serious treatment and never needs to be unsupervised around a child ever. Uh, and this can happen with at the adult level and all as well with the abused uh, party, but it's much more difficult with an adult because an adult is a lot more able to figure out what the hell's going on. Kids trust their mother, so when she says, Johnny, take this, he does. So the concept of a Munchauser by proxy government is, I will make you sick so that I can offer you a cure. right? And there's definitely some of that going on. I actually think most of the people in our government are dupes, though. They're pushed by lobbyists. They're controlled. That process is coming more from the people that fund the government, and I mean fund the pockets of the politicians, than it is from the politicians themselves. The politicians are far more marionettes than most of us want to admit. But they do some of this too. But the reality is government is constantly trying to control a free market. That's the big problem we have today. Free markets fix themselves, they regulate themselves, they straighten themselves out. There's very little real regulation needed. We can follow certain rules like you don't steal, you don't cheat, right? You don't illegally suppress your competition, etc. And instead we come up with legal ways to suppress our competition and we call those regulations. And every time you try to regulate something that does not wish to be regulated, you're going to screw it up. Well then... This is like the person, let's go back to the medical analogy. If you're sick, you're sick to your stomach, and I give you a medication, you remain sick to your stomach but become dizzy. What a doctor today goes is, huh, that's made you dizzy, but it's helping your stomach even though it's not. Let me give you this other thing to counteract the dizziness. And then that makes the problem worse. And, you know, I worked insurance for like this brief mouse fart of my existence because I hated it. And you go talk to older people and to add on to their insurance policies and say, are you on any medications? And they go, oh, yeah, let me get it out because I don't remember it all unless I've got my list and my bottles. And they bring out like 10 pill bottles. And it was like one medication actually was for a problem, and the other nine were to counteract the other. It's crazy, right? This is, and this is, does that mean doctors want you sick? No, it means they've been trained this way, they think this way, problem solution, problem medication, pill, and the pharmaceutical companies, right? The pharmaceutical companies are the one doing this. They know what they're doing. They're making trillions of freaking dollars by keeping people sick and managing their illness. Pharmaceutical companies don't make money curing illness. They make money treating illness, so more illness is better for them. The people funding your government, the people behind the Federal Reserve, the mega banks, the mega corporations, they're the ones that profit from the problems. So they're the ones agitating and causing the problems. Your marionette puppet leaders that are so stupid and easily led and allow themselves to be holed into special interests through the lobbying process do this, and then they also have these great ideas. Anybody that wants to be a congressman or a senator in general, not these people that are like, there's people now trying to do it because they basically want to undo things, but generally speaking, most people don't want to control other people's lives. They don't. They just want to be left the hell alone, let me do my thing, you do your thing, and we'll all be fine. 
Most normal people do not want to tell other people what to do. Only busybody assholes really want to control other people. They naturally gravitate toward government. They think they know a better way. They take an action. That action seems like a good idea. They might even be able to convince you it's a good idea. But the unintended consequences underneath pop up like a mole six months, six years down the road, and they go, look at this new problem. They never look back to see where they caused it. So there's a, a dual sword here cutting. There's incompetence creating this problem-solution track. And every time we fix the solution or the problem with the solution, we get more problems, an incompetence side. And there's a malice side. But most of the malice side is not your congressman or your senator. It's the guy pulling his strings. They're the ones doing it. Just like there's not a, doctors do not go through medical school. They don't pay exorbitant insurance costs. They don't, you know, study their brains out. They don't take, you know, doctors are generally some of the smartest people in the world to even be able to complete the course of study. They don't go through a two-year residency process that drives some people completely out of their mind nuts. They don't deal with all, they don't deal with a profession that has a higher incidence of suicide and alcoholism and drug abuse than most because they're bad guys that want to hurt people. They're just, that's just not who doctors are. Yet they are a piece of this component. And they are being controlled by the pharmaceutical companies and they're being sent out to do this. They've been put into a regulated system where it's almost impossible for them to do anything else. And then the system has further broken them up. So you go to four different doctors that may not really be communicating with each other. And next thing you know, you have an old person on eight medications when they don't need even one. What they needed was a lifestyle adjustment or a nutrient like B12. That's that's more what this is. If it was just a malicious government, well, the solution would be easy, would it not? We just get rid of them all. Everybody always says it, but nobody does it. And you know why? First of all, people are dumbed down to believe the dichotomy, first of all. But second of all, people in their hearts, they really know it won't matter. They really know. They try to believe it's going to matter, but in their hearts they know that every single person that's ever held that job basically behaved the same way whether it's a president, a congressman, a senator, and they know that even when this person stands up and fights for what seems right, it just never seems to work out that way, and the government as a whole always moves in the same direction. We know this even when we want to deny it, when we want to create the illusion of freedom. And the only explanation is the system and those in control of the system are moving it, and the people in it become cogs. Not only are you a chess piece in the mind of the people that are really running things, really controlling things, So are your congressmen and your senators. They might be a rook or a knight on the chessboard and to the, to the, 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 the scum you're upon, but you're all willing to be sacrificed at any time. It doesn't mean I see that. Some people go, that's not fair, Jack. I'm not a pawn. I'm a hero. I understand that. I'm not saying I see you that way. I'm saying the wealthy elites that are behind the curtain of all this, the ones that set up a Federal Reserve system that makes your money debt, The ones that run the pharmaceutical companies that put your 80-year-old grandmother on eight medications with seven of them to counteract the effects of the others, those people, they know what they're doing. There's your malice. There's your government with a munchauxer by proxy government. It just isn't usually the people you're casting ballots for. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Wilson in South Texas. My wife and I are planning on building a home on a 40-acre wooded family property down here. Uh, we want to have a home that can be easily cooled uh, or as easy as you can in South Texas. 
uh, yet looks like a normal home. Uh, what material or building type would you consider? So far, we've looked into ICS, and uh, it looks like the best way to go, but we certainly aren't sure with our limited knowledge. Um, but uh, any help would be great. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for your podcast. Bye-bye. Well, um, ICF, which is uh, insulating concrete forms, which are basically you put uh, down your forms and you pour concrete uh, in the inner lock, is what I would immediately kind of think to tell you to look into. The other thing that I would say to maybe look into for this house would be foam and steel construction, uh, where you're dealing with panels that are basically steel-framed, foam in the center, and you build your structure out of that, and then you put up your walls on the inside and the outside. Either one of these technologies, the house can look any way you want it to on the inside and on the outside, because this is really the frame of the house that we're talking about. They're both very strong, very, very energy efficient, and I'm not an expert in either one, and I don't know enough about them to tell you why I would do one versus the other. One of the people that I worked for in my early career in telecommunications was a guy named Wayne Bowles, and I know he was heavily investing in the foam and steel side of things, which is the only reason I even know that it was that it's available. And I remember we had some of them at the uh, warehouse where we had all our telecom stuff, and he had them outside. He was showing them to me, and they were, you know, one man could pick up one, and they're so lightweight, but yet you come up with such a strong construction when it's done when they're all locked together. Um, and either way, you've got this massive insulation, and that's your key in any event. There's some other things to look at, though, beyond the structure itself. I'll, I'll leave that as the two technologies I would most recommend you look into, especially for South Texas. And that is the overall way that the house is built. So the, the, um, the floor plan, so to speak, uh, kitchens can be pretty warm, and it's okay. We don't really expect that. Um, you know, entryways can be pretty warm. So generally you want to lay your floor plan out. This is not how typically homes are built. So that kitchen area, you know, living area, things like that are toward the south side of the house. And then we want to pull our bedrooms and our bathrooms to the, the, the north side of the house, the cold side. Um, generally we sleep well when we're cool. Right, And we can always be warmer by putting on more blankets. It's hard to cool yourself. Beyond. So that's one of the things you can do is just create the floor plan more in line with what areas of the house should be coolest. Right, So you might want your master bedroom to be on your southwest corner of the home. It's going to get hit with the sun or southeast corner of the home. It's going to get hit with the sun in the morning on that side. But relatively quickly, that sun's going to pass. Maybe that's coming up over to your kitchen now. But by afternoon, it's rested from the heat all day long. It's going to be one of the coolest rooms in the home. Where kind of your central room, your south central room, and your southwest rooms are generally going to become two of your hottest areas of the home. So it's not just how is the home built, but understanding how the home fits into the architecture. Planting deciduous trees on the south side of the home that block that sun in winter and let the sun in in summer is a huge thing as well, as, long, as well as things like uh, vined-over pergodas and things like that. So I, I think you have to look at it beyond just the construction, but if you want the construction answer, again, ICF or foam and steel are probably two of the best. Um, I like structures like monolithic domes, but... My concern is if you ever want to sell the house, 
with trying to have bought a dome structure at home myself and not being able to even start the process due to not being able to get an appraisal of a comp done to get financing for it, I worry about these structures that are actually great structures unless you really plan to live there for the rest of your life. And remember, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right. So even when you say that, you never know. And, you know, they say, you know, when we go into a military conflict, we have to have an exit strategy. When you go into anything in life, it's a major decision, like buying a home, developing land. You also have to have an exit strategy. And my concern with earth chips and monolithic domes and all is you severely limit your buyer's market. I'm not so worried so much about, well, some people don't like it. Some people don't like blue. Right? Some people don't like bricks. Some people don't like gable roofs. I, that's, the problem is getting the financing so that your buyer can buy. And when you're stuck with people that have to use high down payment, unconventional financing, or pay cash, or things like that, you limit the pool of available buyers beyond what people like. So, so when you go with ICF or foam and steel, you can build a house that looks like everybody else's house. Um, but don't just stop at the construction. Look at your windows. That's, that's your big energy sink a lot of times. Think about where you locate windows in your home. That one area where the sun hits all the time, that window is bringing a lot of light in, but it's also bringing a lot of heat. Look at windows that have thermal heat blocking capability. Um, there's windows that have films inside of them that they, you know, you get a window salesperson to show you, you can put an infrared heat lamp on it and put your hand on the other side and you can't feel any heat at all. Um, in Texas, that would be a big advantage. You only need so much heat in Texas. You, you don't really need a lot of thermal gain in Texas. What you're looking to do is keep the place cool. So those are my thoughts on that. Um, if anybody out there has a real background in ICF or foam and steel or both and would like to come on the show as a guest about those technologies, I'd love to have you just fill out the guest form on the site. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on guest, fill out the form, and Dorothy will get you booked. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Kevin in Connecticut. I have a question I haven't heard covered on TSC before, and I wanted your opinion. I have uh, a HSA account and have the opportunity to use it for laser vision correction. I wear glasses, and certainly they can be a burden sometimes. I just wonder what your thoughts were from a preparedness standpoint, whether that might be a good idea or not. I mean, 20 years ago, I wouldn't even consider laser vision correction, but the technology has come a long way, and certainly I know glasses can be a problem sometimes. If not laser vision correction, what's your thoughts as far as vision preparedness would be a good thing to talk about, I think. Uh, what type of glasses to have, what type of materials they should be made of, how many glasses per family member, all those things would be interesting, I think. So I appreciate all you do. Keep up the good work, and... Uh, Take care. Um, I'll tell you what. I am not a candidate for laser correction, uh, laser correction surgery due to the nature of my uh, vision problems in my weak eye, my left eye. Um, and while I have a little tiny bit of weakness in my right eye, I've been told it's just not worth it, that I really don't require correction for my right eye. That it's in my glasses because I wear them anyway. But if, you know, I've had eye doctors tell me if, if your left eye was really great, and your right eye was exactly the same as it is now, or if your left eye was as good as your right eye, I wouldn't even give you glasses, right? So, um, which I find hard to believe, uh, honestly, in some ways. But you know, that's so it's not available to me. If it was, I would probably do it. If you can eliminate something that can have a mechanical failure, like glasses or contacts, and get that out of your way, 
then I think you should do it. As long as you have a good prognosis for it and you trust the person doing the work. I think that, yes, it has come a long way and it makes sense. Your other question on glasses. This is what I've done. Uh, I found Zeni Optical. I got a pair of glasses comparable to the ones I already had that I paid over $350 for. That pair of glasses cost me about $70. It's, if you can load a pair of glasses up, it's loaded. You know, the special lenses that have scratch resistance, uh, the uh, transition lenses that darken, really nice set of frames, beautiful looking set of glasses as far as I'm concerned, as beautiful as glasses can be, $70. Bucks. Um, I found the ability to construct another pair of glasses on Zany Optical that looked almost as good. In fact, if they're sitting next to each other, I have to look at them close to know which ones are which or stick them in the window and see which one's tint so I know which is which. That second set of glasses with the plain Jane plastic lightweight lenses that they come with um, and a decent steel half-frame style like I like uh, was under $10. And I bought three pairs, and I've ordered more. And this is how many pairs that I am going to have in the end of these secondary glasses, not the really nice ones. Um, again, they're plenty nice to wear. They just don't have all the features I want. I like the transition. I like when I go outside, I immediately have sun, sunglasses on. And when I come inside, maybe I have to take them off for a couple of minutes because it's so dark, but uh, I like the feature. So I have one in my one set in my nightstand. I have one set in the glove box of my truck, one set in the glove box of my other truck, and one set in the glove box of my car. If I'm somewhere, one of my vehicles will be there. If I lose my glasses and I need to drive, there will be glasses for me to drive. And I have put another pair into my firebox where we keep some silver and ammo and stuff like that. So that even if my entire house burned down and somebody blew up all three of my cars, when we dug the box out, there would be a set of glasses. Why? Because they're that important. Because your vision is key to things like situational awareness. Uh, your vision often will let you get through situations that you otherwise would not, tactical or otherwise. And I think at, you know, when you can get prescription glasses, you know, backup prescription glasses down to 10 bucks a pair. Um, I think if you are a prescription glasses wearer, you should kind of take that same approach. I mean, 50 bucks is five sets to make sure you can always see. Now, some people would say, but sometimes your eyes change, your prescription changes, etc. True, but not to the level that they want to make it out to, and that's why you should go to your eye doctor and give them $400 for a $50 pair of glasses. Um, in fact, I've gotten to the point with, with my eye doctor where my thought is, listen, we're not changing my prescription anymore, because what I ended up doing is I had such a thick lens for my left eye because it's so weak that it was ridiculous. Like my glasses would tilt. Because it was so damn, that's like Coke bottle and then this lens that's just there. It doesn't really do anything. Um, and, you know, I said, well, what is this getting me to? And he says, this is getting you to about 2080. And I said, if we cut the hell out of this correction, what is it going to get me to? He said, 2090, 2100. I'm like, I can barely tell the difference. Cut the correction down. And he resisted, but then he eventually did it. So now I have glasses that make me look like a normal human being. And there's just no need for me to have this huge amount of correction for such a little bit of optical gain. I can, you know, basically I'm half blind in one eye and nothing is going to change that, but I can bring it from half blind to a quarter blind, fine. Uh, and I have really good, and with the correction in my right eye, with a middle, a little bit of correction, I'm not 2020 there, I'm like about 2010. So I have really great vision in my right eye to compensate for things with the correction. But it's important. It's important to be able to see what you're doing. Uh, it's important to be able to watch TV, and, and, and to me anyway, this is a personal thing, and see what the hell is going on, to be able to read the programming guide and whatever. So 
again, I like Zini. I'll put a link to their site. They're not a sponsor. I don't have affiliates or anything like that with them. Uh, but I'll tell you what, when it comes to saving money, and last time I talked about it, some guy got all in a wad and said, you're going to put eye doctors out of business and whatever. Look, man, uh, eye doctors form, provide a service of being an eye doctor. They check your eyes out. They tell you when something's wrong. They recommend corrective action, etc. If they also want to be in the glasses selling business, then they don't need to be ripping people off. And some of them don't, I'm sure. But I'm going to tell you that every one of them I've ever dealt with is flat out overcharging for frames and lenses. And the convenience of being able to order a pair of glasses on the Internet and have them show up. Uh, Zini takes a while to get your glasses, but at the price, it's hard to bitch. Uh, just my thoughts. Let's take one more, and we'll wrap today up. Hi, Jack. This is Bob from uh, Northwest Connecticut. have a question about uh, combining blueberries with the permaculture principle. Uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, you had Lee Reich on the show, and he talked about growing blueberries and you know, did a little reading up on that, and it seemed like the thing for me since he said they were easy to grow. Uh, but it does require making the soil more acidic, and I guess blueberries and also lignin berries I'd be interested in planting uh, seem to need a more acidic soil, which I guess keeps weeds away and so forth. But then listening to you talk more about permaculture and some of the Jeff Lawton stuff, uh, thinking, okay, how, how do you combine those two uh, in the best way and uh, throw in the mix? We have some chickens, but I have the feeling that allowing the chickens to rough up the soil and fertilize the soil is not what you want to do before blueberries. So uh, you seem well-versed in the topics, and I figured you know, I'd like to get your uh, thoughts. Uh, Really appreciate it in advance. Uh, thanks for a great show, and have a great Thanksgiving. Bye now. Actually, it really ain't hard at all. Um, the first thing we need to look at is that uh, a blueberry bush does not have a very um, wide root system. So wherever the blueberries are growing, you're only going to go a few inches out past the crown of the plant for the width of where those plants are actually sending their roots. So we can have this kind of clump of blueberries or even one or two blueberry bushes in a shrub with all this other clumpy stuff around it, and we can amend that soil in certain ways in that general area to bring up the acidity a little bit, lower the pH, you know, into the 6 range or something like that, and give them more of what they're looking for without really having a huge impact on everything else in the system. So that's, that's one thing that we can look at. The second thing we need to look at and understand is that if you ask most people, you know, what are the layers in the soil, they're going to tell you you got your topsoil, your subsoil, etc. And the reality is each of these layers has multiple layers. And when we stop turning the soil and plowing it up, each of those layers will stratify into different nutrients and to different pHs. And you can have a piece of ground that's one meter square, but as you go at different layers, you'll actually, if you don't mix it up the way they test soil, if you actually tested the pH at, let's say, every quarter inch, you'd find that each layer has subtle differences in pH, and some are more acidic, some are more neutral, and some are more basic. It's not as uniform as we've been led to believe by lab testing. So you can have plants with very different pH requirements. They'll grow side by side, and you wonder what the hell is going on. 
Well, plants, it turns out, actually seem to have this innate intelligence, and they'll stratify their primary root structures at the layers that are most conducive to the nutrient and the pH requirements of what they're looking for. And they may send other roots deeper into different layers, mainly looking for moisture, and they actually kind of can sort this whole thing out to a degree. The other thing is we can say, well, what can we plant in with these blueberries that will work with them, not overtake them, and can handle some more acidic soil. Well, from a productive standpoint, herbs, specifically basil, uh, thyme, rosemary, will do well even with acidic soils. So those are good ones there. Now, the rosemary is an evergreen, and just about any evergreen, if we drop the green needles, not the brown needles, but the green needles to the ground, will somewhat acidify the soil, just like pine will. We could even put maybe a little scrubby pine here and there, maybe some nut pine into that polyculture, and occasionally chop and drop a little bit of green needles in and around our blueberries. And we still plant everything else all around it, right? We're going to have this area with a little bit of, of uptick of the acidity, but we're going to mostly let the plant find its own acidity unless we're in a place where the soil's way to the alkaline side of thing. If you are in a place where your soil is in like let's say the six, eight, seven, four range, somewhere in there, it's almost guaranteed that somewhere in the stratified layers, there's places where the, the acidity drops down into the closer to the six range and goes higher into the middle sevens in, in other layers. It's almost inevitable And if we put certain polycultures and mixtures of plants there, a lot of that will get created for itself. We can also do things like if you find any organic um, fertilizer that's specifically for things like um, azaleas and rhododendron, which is usually easier to find than for blueberries, you will find that it will slightly acidify the soil because both rhododendron uh, and azalea like that type of environment. So if we're doing high bush blueberry and low bush azalea, we can put the azaleas in there. Are they a directly productive thing? No, but they have flowers, they have scents, they help confuse pests, they bring in pollinators, etc. So we can put some of those in there, but the other side of it is any organic fertilizer made for those plants, we can then use with our blueberries, especially if it's a mixed with water, you know, liquid fertilizer, and we can go in there just once in a while and give them a little bit of supplemental irrigation with that fertilizer that takes things in the direction they want without soaking our entire polyculture and kind of give them a boost if they need it. And we may find that they're not. Now, as far as chickens and having them scratch around manure and everything before you plant, yes, absolutely. I don't care if it's a blueberry. I don't care if it's a freaking daisy. I don't care what it is. No problem. What we don't want to do with chickens is let them back into that system before it's established when they can damage it. So prior to planting, let them go nuts, but then we've got to keep them out of the system until it matures, until our blueberry bushes are really up and our herbs are well established and all, and it can handle them again. But prior to it, the nutrient, you know, just because of a, a, a blueberry bush, wants a pH that's lower than an apple tree doesn't mean that they both don't like the nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium that they're going to get by letting chickens graze the area. And, and just because they want a different pH doesn't mean the soil aeration, loosening up and removal of pests that the chickens provide. So the reality is you probably could get away with just planting everything and not worrying about it. 
But you can do some things to adjust it, and you can do some ally planting, some companion planting that will work well. Again, any kind of evergreen or pine in that blueberry area, especially a small, scrubby pine that you could just throw some needles down once in a while uh, would work. Or um, uh, you know, some kind of a nut pine, uh, not a whole grove of them, because then you are going to start to turn toward the acid state uh, in, in some ways. You know, but you also got to think about this. Nature doesn't know what it's doing. Kind of a final lesson here. Do you know where pine trees tend to grow? Most people say, well, they grow where the soil is acidic. No, they don't. They really do not generally grow where the soil is acidic. They generally are a pioneering tree that starts to establish themselves in a place where the soil is alkaline. Why? It's too alkaline. It needs to come to the acid side of things. So they're able, pines are widely adaptable, they thrive with acidic soil, but they can establish themselves when most other trees can't, even when it's a little bit toward the alkaline end of the structure. So that's nature bringing balance, right? It's just like weeds. Where do dandelions grow? Do dandelions tend to grow in rich, loamy, soft soil where you can stick your hand straight into it? No, they grow in compacted soil. Why? They have a long taproot that can penetrate the compacted soil and decompact it so nature can success forward, right? Where do shallow-rooted weeds that don't have deep, hard taproots grow? They grow in loose soil that's so loose it's going to blow away unless something holds it down. They hold it long enough so that it can get structure and come together to where deep taprooted things can come in behind it and success forward. So, it's it's again, it's almost like nature knows what it's doing. So, If you plant blueberries and they grow, and they're sitting next to a, a, a you know an almond tree that really prefers more of a 7-2 pH, and both of them do fine, just don't worry about it. If you stop turning the soil, a lot of times, straight up, unless you have something really leaning to one end of the pH spectrum, that's what you're going to get. They'll sort themselves out. With that, been a great episode. Lots of variation today. Really enjoyed today's questions. Went through 13 versus 10. To try to get a few more people on the air. You want to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Again, those of you that are interested in a lifetime MSB membership, last day closes at midnight tonight. You don't have to pay today, but you got to ask for an invoice or how to pay by mail today. There'll be a link in today's show notes for how to do that. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
tidy up their cares. They're living for 